The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book club. And now a Wheel of Time watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show adaptation, which just premiered early last night. We are very excited to be digging into the new adaptation and talking about the episodes we have seen so far. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me is Katie Jarvis. Hello. Oh, I didn't catch anything. <laughs> Hello. There we go. Um, it's just the two of us for the minute. Uh, Keely is out sick today, and Dan will be joining, I believe, a little late. He has not had the chance to catch the show uh, yet, which went up early last night. Uh, so it is just going to be initially Katie and me talking about our thoughts on the first uh, two episodes, uh, although three have premiered unexpectedly. Uh, I was on Monday supposed to see an early pre-screening in theaters, as was Dan on the other coast. And despite showing up uh, half an hour early in his case and an hour early in my case, we did not make it in. We had tickets reserved and everything, but there was a lot of turnout lining up hours early to get in to see it in theaters. So, you know, uh, it was not so bad waiting, in my case, until last night when we were surprised by the early release on Thursday. And which looks like, just for our fans' knowledge, it looks like that will be the case going forward. That um, Amazon, when they say that their shows premiere on Friday, they mean 12 a.m. Friday, Greenwich Mean Time, like actual Greenwich Mean Time, plus zero. Which means that's uh, uh, 4, 4 p.m. Thursday for those of us on the U.S. Pacific Coast. And Thursday at 7 p.m. for those on the East Coast. So those are the time slots if you want to keep up with the show on Thursday nights or whenever else you see it. You can find us at Wattcast.net and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. However, if you join us on Patreon at the $5 Tarvalin tier, you will be a part of the White Tower in which you'll get access to special bonus episodes where we talk about things like Wheel of Time, short stories, graphic novels, video games, failed TV pilots, and Dune. We wrapped up our part two Dune conversation on Denis Villeneuve's series, which will be up by the time you're listening to this episode. So as of now, if you sign up to the Patreon uh, at the $5 tier or higher, you will immediately get access to two bonus odes, which are a lot of fun, and you will continue to get more in the future. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wadcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. For those unfamiliar, the Wheel of Time is a how-to guide for teens looking to backpack their way across the European countryside while dodging overzealous pyramid scheme proselytizers and singing for their supper. But before we get into where we left off in 
book one, Eye of the World. Katie, uh, the show is out. We we both saw at least some of it, two episodes. What did you think? Yay. Um, well, it was really exciting. I was trying to think if I've ever so closely read something and then watched the like the mm-hmm. show. And I don't think I've ever done it in like this proximity. So it was exciting for that reason. Um Uh, let's see. My initial impressions were that I think they did a really good job, um, making the plot cohesive, especially in that first episode. Um, I thought it was interesting how like there were some things that we didn't find out through like most of the first book that were revealed Uh in that first episode. Um, (laughs) and in the first couple seconds of the first episode, even right. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, but but the choices seemed like they were done for a good reason, like to to make the viewer understand the the scope of the story a little bit more. So I I felt like I was for those changes, but it was just interesting to see. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, I thought. I thought the acting was really good. Like the characters seemed to embody who I felt they were in the story. So that that was a strong point for me. What did you think of that? Yeah, I'm really sold on this cast so far. Um, I I really had no complaints about any of the casting until the third episode, which you haven't gotten to ah. yet. Uh, so we'll get to that one a little later. With a conspicuously absent character in the first two episodes, uh, I, I don't know if you were as surprised as I was that we got no Tom Marilyn yeah, yet? Yeah, I was waiting in, for in him, the and then I was like, yeah. I was like, maybe he's just gonna come in later, but he wasn't there. So yeah, that was um, that was interesting, and I'm trying to think through the plot, like how will the plot work without him. Um, but maybe there's more surprises in store in that regard. So that there was that, and there was a lot of changes with um, uh, Nynaeve's uh, presence in that initial episode. Mm-hmm. I thought too, which was interesting. Yeah, it changes, and I think we suspected this reading, it changes so much not being anchored to Rand's perspective throughout the events of the first five chapters, because I think that's about what get covered plus some in the first episode. Like, it really, uh, especially, I mean, getting, I think getting Moraine so intensely at land changes the most, especially given that they're not hiding anything and there's no mystery around their arrival. They, uh, by the end of the first episode, Moraine has told the kids, well, they're not even kids because everybody got aged up in this one. She's told the the four Two Rivers um, young adults that one of them is the reincarnation of the dragon, uh, the dragon reborn, which was, I think um, you had some sense of that maybe things were going. I don't know. What was your what was your reaction to that or to uh, was that a revelation at that point? I don't <laughs> think it was a revelation, but it was so direct and like so upfront. And, you know, in the whole like what are we're at page, you know, 576 in my copy of the book and mm-hmm. nothing has been that direct up until this point. Um so that, yeah, it was, but, but I do think it adds like a sense of cohesiveness to the journey for the viewer mm-hmm. to know that up front. So I understand why they did it. Like it makes the mission very clear. Yeah. Which I, I, I think there's, there's pretty good sense in that since um, we don't really get an antagonist making a direct appearance in, in the pilot necessarily. I mean, we have the, we have the Trollocs obviously, but we don't have like, we don't really know um, until she says that what the Dark One's deal is or like what the interest in the village is. And like you said, I feel like that's a good thing to anchor audiences in the stakes of all this. Uh, the the I, I think, it, yeah, like, like you said, I think most of the streamlining changes they did throughout the episode, I was both impressed with 
the uh, the things that they streamlined to get through so much uh, and pretty much on board um with with almost all of it um i'm trying to think through some of the biggest changes it is interesting that we open with the red aja hunting down a channeler at the beginning because that gives you a very different framing and it's uh, you know a male channeler that that they're hunting down um and 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 she sort of gives it an um, an ominous uh this power was not meant for you it belong it belongs to women thing before doing something to him that he starts screaming and then we get into the not quite the title sequence yet but on, on with the episode um so i almost feel like it is framing immediately um the red aja as being a more present um set of their own i i felt like they were being framed pretty villainously in that in that shot like especially when you don't know what's going on if you if your viewer who hasn't read the book right like all all you know is that there's some poor guy that they're chasing uh and then apparently torturing be, um because he has access to some power he's not supposed to um so that was an interesting framing there to start and then we and moraine's watching it right and land and land and we immediately learn that she is hunting down young people of either gender of around 20 years old right in this one instead of 19 i guess just to make that clear um but Egwene is also 20 in this one uh to and i guess this is the biggest question um they are certainly setting it up that any of these four could be not just Taviran, but the dragon. And I, I, my, uh, the biggest question is how much they are willing to change in this. Is it possible they will change who is ultimately the dragon, which would be <laughs> enormous. Uh, like, I, I, I don't know if, um, I don't know what you think based on we, where we are at the book so far, what your sense was, what they were doing with that. Is this just to mess with people who haven't read them? Maybe <laughs> I, I thought, yeah, it was just to maybe give us a sense. I mean, it was interesting because I was thinking how in the book, we don't even exactly know why Moraine and Land showed up in, um, in Two Rivers in the first place. So in, in, the, yeah. in the show, it's very clearly framed. She was like, this is why I have gone here. Um, so that was really direct. Um, and yeah. Maybe- is it the first episode or second episode she talks about? The old blind eye Sedai who had the prophecy that oh, that she alone heard was it was it when she was on horseback when she was giving that whole speech is that when that happened or no um it could they're on horseback a lot so I, don't <laughs> know, I remember it, so yeah it could, could be could be uh, uh yeah I couldn't I'm remember if sure. that's episode one or not I'm not yeah. sure but yeah I did think you know that scene with the um I Sedai kind of uh attacking that man I thought it also did another thing of setting up like the gender politics right away like in the mm. first episode I thought it was a very clear that like this is a world in which the women can wield the power and the men are dangerous with the power um so i mean that's clear in the book too but i think that they like went out of their way to kind of punch that a little bit um yeah and i also thought uh, what did you think of the white cloaks because in the same way that the red aja were maybe kind of made villainous i thought that the white cloaks were made like clearly mm-hmm. villainous uh it maybe yes more so than yeah. in the book because we open with one of not one of the normal children of the light, but one of the questioners who even the other children of the light don't like because they are like they are the zealous interrogators who um, who may at any time decide even another white cloak is potentially a dark friend. And they're, they're like the most powerful. They're, they're kind of like they're like the, the, the black ops of of the white cloaks. And we're set up. um is he, are they burning an Aes Sedai at the stake right away? Yes. Is that the very first time? 
we we see them. Yeah, and he has those rings on, so we know that he's kind of murderous and um, yeah. Oh yeah, he's collecting great serpent rings um, from from the the quote unquote witches he finds. Is it? And it was interesting. I think that they've done something else by even changing their costumes. Like the the white the white cloaks in the book, they wear kind of like you know. They were basically regular armor, like regular plate mail, and they just have like a white cloak draped over with the golden sunburst on. And they're kind of, um, I feel like they're made to look sort of like crusaders, uh, like or, or Knights Templar sort of thing. In this, their robes to me make them look much, much more like the religious order they are as much as they are like a paramilitary order. They've got like these, you know, like um, like all, all almost... Um, I mean, they don't look like any real religious robes, but there, but there's something like almost nun-like or something about having having those right uh, on, as a costume um, sets them apart even more. Uh, I guess uh, the biggest character change that really took me and Eric, my partner, aback as we were watching was Perrin as a wife, yeah, and uh, <laughs> not for very long. <laughs> That was so sad and tragic and it changes like, you know, what we're always talking in the book, the three males have this like pure adolescence to them in that they're like very inexperienced with women Yes, and they have kind of like a naivete there. Um, And this really changes that, the, the, their kind of family structures that they're given um, Mm -hmm. certainly adds something to the character, but also changes your perception of the character. So I thought with Perrin, he was just much more like grown up and assured and had had this tragic event happen, um, which is just different. Yeah. And, and I feel like if you, for, uh, it was the moment she appeared on screen or the moment, actually, no, it was even before it's Layla, right? Is it Layla or Taylor is, or, or, or K- Kayla? It's that something sure. Ayla, I think, um, she, she, it's mentioned in the tavern in the first scene with the two rivers folk that Perrin has a wife and immediately Eric and I turned to each other and we're like, Oh God, did they give him a wife just to kill her? Like that was immediately <laughs> the fir- first thought like that there. That, and so I, I did, I did feel a little iffy about like, there, there's something slightly, I mean, you know, this is like the grungy side of writing, like the, the kind of grossness of like introducing a new, <laughs> there's something dirty feeling about just throwing in a new character who does not exist in the book just for the sake of killing her to give Perrin more pathos. But at the same, by the same token, I, I agree that that does give him much more to work with and to, to feel like there's much more sense of why they're fleeing what they're leaving behind um and some of that is not added it's just stuff we don't get in the in eye of the world beginning because we're stuck in Rand's perspective like we all we i don't i don't think in eye of the world yet we have learned all that stuff about matt and his family and a real sense of his relationship with his sisters and his and his uh drunk mother and and philandering father which I don't think we get until Matt perspective chapters, which are either really late in Eye of the World or in like the book two flashbacks from the two rivers. Because Rand is just kind of this oblivious dunce in, in, in the book for the most part. Yeah. Right? And he's and he's also feels more like a child, like we said, who's just oblivious I to ha- a lot of things. I have to say the characters were more likable to me in the show, which mm-hmm. um, so I... I suppose that's kind of what they were doing, trying to give them like a bit of uh, depth and resonance. And uh, yeah, all of them were a bit more likable. And then, of course, I was expecting them to kind of bump up any love story they could. So I feel like mm. between um, Egwene and Rand, that was just much more uh, like oh, upfront yeah. and intimate. And and like, you know, it, it definitely wasn't that way. It was much more innocent and subtle in the book. Oh yeah, and the thought of the thought of them like just 
and you know, there's a lot of tension set up between them in the show, which I think is there in the book, but it is more present here because there's more of that physical sense of, of the relationship they have. And the, but the fact that they just, you know, have sex, uh, like at the end of this fraught first night, that, that'd be like such a scandal in the ver- in the version of them we've read in Eye of the World, right? Like if if uh, anybody in the village found out, but it does feel like um, a totally acceptable to me, Hollywoodization kind of thing to get you like more invested in this relationship um, that is immediately going through turmoil. And and yeah, even just the performances to me gave us much more of the sense of they they do love each other, but they're already starting to go down different paths even before Moraine shows up kind of way that in the book just takes forever to be communicated that sense because they're ran just has such a such a you know like we've said kind of feels more like a 13 year old's like uh temerity and um refusal to really engage with his feelings about Egwene or or to like really and people put so many cards on the tables here they were doing the thing that drove uh, um several of us crazy throughout the book right of just telling people stuff like they tell uh is it episode two that they they just straight up tell moraine about their dreams and she and she's telling them things that she hasn't told them in the books everybody's just putting cards on the table much much earlier here i was yeah i felt i had like a moment of irritation where where they just explicitly say what their dreams were to her because and i i have a feeling they're gonna hide future dreams from her because Mm -hmm. she said make sure you tell me when you have more dreams so that led me to believe that they're not going to um once what maybe once balsman actually offers them something or starts telling them specific things but i was a little bit like oh okay well it's just coming right out there Uh, which makes it all really, really fast, uh, especially episode one to me felt like um, I, I had I, I just really liked this first episode. I thought it was exciting. It was establishing stakes. It was beautiful. I, I forget. Wait, is this um, I forget. Is this uh, Hungary or the Czech Republic? I'm suddenly going going blank on uh, where this was shot in Czech, right? Um, I, which I had no idea had mountains this huge and gorgeous. And I was wondering like, is this partly the Alps? Like these are like the beautiful vistas of the valley that two rivers is in. And we're just booking through plot. Um, we get to see much more of, uh, the Trollocs showing up. And I know we're jumping all over here because my, you know, I think our thoughts are (laughs) jumping all over and mine certainly are. And we get, um, we get dynamics that we won't see explored till much, much later in the eye of the world. Like the fact that uh, we get all the, like you said, the naive stuff early on and we get immediately the Moraine and naive and even this admission of why naive has like this disdain for the White Tower uh, based on her mentor and everything. And even like a moment of ambiguity about whether naive is going because her birth is kind of uncertain as well, sort of like Rand's. And she is also maybe a foundling who was brought to the two rivers. But at the end of that, Moraine ascertains that she's too old to be one of the prophecy ones that she's like 25, 26, um, something around there. But they have this this that conversation in, in the sacred pools area. And we see so much more of like Nynaeve's role here in the village and the women's circle because they all they open with um, they sort of combined uh, Egwene's bra- adult ceremony here getting the braid with her with that anecdote about her falling down a river and and touching the power for the first time which here is Nynaeve pushing her yeah. <laughs> into the river which was very funny to me yeah no it was interesting because the, the characters of Egwene and Nynaeve and, and their tensions uh, like Nynaeve's tension with Moraine was much more understandable where there were like specific parts in the book where 
Nynaeve is kind of annoying me because I'm like, why is she being uh-huh. so obstinate? But here it makes, it's much more clear and it makes perfect sense. And yeah, it, in a sense, this, the first two episodes here did like, they're like mm. the exact opposite of Dune in that they mm. didn't take like this slow getting to know the characters approach. They just like threw us into the plot um, yep. and got, got as much in there as humanly possible. And I, I mean, I think it did a pretty good job at that. And uh, yeah, I I only started to feel that we might be going a little too fast. I think in episode two, uh, like all of episode one, I thought that was like the perfect pacing for this, like, you know, to really get people grounded in this, get the inciting event and everything all by the end of the first hour to have this. But I thought was a pretty spectacular for TV display of the power when Moraine is fighting the Trollocs in the village. Um, oh, another significant plot change there uh, where Moraine is wounded by a, what looked like a pretty serious hatchet to the to her chest from one of the Trollocs to... Um, to set up that she is also uh, being afflicted by by the Sheogul infection and that this is like this ticking clock that she is going to die if she can't get treatment from another Aes Sedai because she does heal Tam, as in the book, and establishes that nothing can heal a Sheogul blade except uh, the one power. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic they've introduced where... Um, I know you didn't get to the third yet, but by the end of the second, I think she is already like looking a lot paler and weaker and like having trouble going on. Um, is is that not a? I didn't remember from the book that that Maureen couldn't heal herself. Is that is that true in the books as well? That they need that an Aes Sedai can't heal themselves; they need another Aes Sedai to heal them. That's true. Yeah, um, I, I don't think she got wounded, but that did come up. Uh, I think in the context of she couldn't take the fatigue from herself. Um, And remember, we had that conversation about like, you can't do much to yourself with the one power because it's like trying to lift yourself up by by your bootstraps or or something like is this not because of the way the flows work and how you're reaching out uh, and like as extensions of yourself out into the world, you can't really do things to yourself in the same way, which sort of kind of sort of makes sense. I I don't know what we will learn more about the power, although we've learned, I feel like more about the power in these first couple episodes of the show than we have at the three quarters point of of Eye of the World where we are in the book, because because we've been out, you know, never in Moraine's perspective, really. And in that one. Uh, so far, I was wondering what you um, what you thought of the fantasy elements. It was I had like an interesting discussion with my husband because he was like, I was expecting it to look more realistic, like Game of Thrones, because they put so much mm. money into it. Um, but I was like, well, this is like high fantasy, so it's not. You know, Game of Thrones has some fantastic elements, I guess, like later on, or you know, with the White Walkers and things like that. But it's not like high fantasy, and that's just never going to look totally real because it's I I don't know so yeah that was interesting I um I have I I think there are I had a sense that I wish they had waited longer before showing us the weaves because the first couple times we see somebody use the one power we don't see what's we see the effect but we don't see like air flowing around in like sort of you know like kind of cartoony looking strands of air or water or or fire we just see like you know i think it may i forget if it's a healing that we initially see like flesh rippling back together kind of um and they i think they have sort of established this in the show through camera perspective but have not really made it clear for an audience who doesn't know i think that only people who can wield the power can see the power in that way can see like the flows of air and water and fire 
other people would not see all those like when Moraine is like tearing all the bricks out of the inn, which she like destroys in this one to make uh, like rock catapults. Um, I think everybody else would just see it more like the force in Star Wars of those rocks like pooling out and hurling. I, I do wish they had kept that longer because I think it is more subtle to to not show us like the the sort of avatar the, the last airbender element uh, of, of similarity of of um which is I think what this feels closest to now and that's you know when I saw avatar for the first time as a kid I was like oh this is a lot like wheel of time magic um especially in the once ang learns to wield the elements together because that's basically what I Sedai do like everything they do with the power is some combination of different flows which again not something we've gotten to in eye of the world yet we don't know how moraine's abilities work or or you know she we know she calls down lightning but we don't know that she does that by sending up flows of air and water and fire into the upper atmosphere and weaving them together in such a way that it that it uh, that it causes a catalyst reaction and lightning comes shooting down because she hasn't explained any of that to Egwene yet at this point uh, they've just done the like the stone heating thing in the second episode um so yeah oh you know what I, I will say the one thing effect why I really like the look of the Trollocs in this I think they look pretty good and yeah. pretty convincing they were good they were yeah. I definitely felt that way they were they were um imaginative like they weren't mm-hmm. like I don't feel like oh this is a creature I've seen before necessarily um and they were fierce and intense and there was so many of them like you really got the magnitude of the kind of attack they were under um yeah, yeah I, I agree with that really brutal too like i mean the book would the book is brutal in a lot of those violent scenes but i i, I thought that part was maybe um more heightened than Game of Thrones, but the most Game of Thrones in terms of like the consequences of like every weapon stroke or like, you know, the the murdering of people in the village or uh, one of my favorite scenes of when a whole bunch of the villagers team up with pitchforks, like 12 of them to take down one Trolloc and are just like viciously stabbing and slamming and everything they can to get the thing down to the ground. It felt it felt weightier, I think, than um, than, you know, necessarily when when Moraine's doing all her CGI stuff. Um throughout those scenes. Yeah, I thought that I actually liked that part because it made the townspeople not seem like defenseless, you know? They had mm-hmm. they fought back and they were strong and then in the second episode when we get that whole story uh that she tells of of the origin of the of their people uh and it's people with strength and hardiness it kind of matches with the fact that they mm. fought back and sing for Manetheren <laughs> and they they uh, the, they have the two rivers folk know the song that she then tells them the story of that. That was it. It's an interesting choice so far. I think most of the music, um, a lot more of which is in episode three, but even in the first two episodes, uh, the music is not like really leaning into the Irish flavor of the the novel so much and the two rivers flavor i feel like and even the aesthetics of the two river they're um a little less irish and a little more scandinavian maybe a, a little uh, to me like the style of the houses and everything they're a little more nordic looking the, the lodges as i saw them but then their songs like that song in particular the sing for Manetherim, had elements to me of like a negro spiritual from the 1800s like that seemed like more the uh the influence it was going for i don't know if you thought the yeah. Same thing of, of the music. I did. But, I had that same and, thought. And I was I was like, it's interesting because I didn't in my head I didn't picture it that way, but um but I liked it. I mean I think it, it fit really well in the scene and I, I liked what it um kind of invoked. Mm-hmm. Um 
and uh, yeah, I guess I won't say the, the thing about the episode three music uh, since since you haven't gotten uh, you to can, it yet. You can if ho- you want. Ho- you can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because I'm interested to get your. There's a bunch of musical scenes, and I'm interested to hear your your fresh take on each of them. So, so I won't say anything about those. Um, other things about episode one and the battles before we're too far past them. I, you know, one thing I really like that we don't get in the book because we don't see the two rivers fight in the book is the way that Moraine and Lan fight together and sort of combine his sword play with her weaving. I feel like we get a lot more of the, the intimacy and the closeness of the relationship between the two of them here. And to me, that was a pretty cool way of showing it visually where she is like weaving like shields of air around them as Lan is like flipping over her and as she is working on like powering some big thing she's about to do. And he's just like keeping the circle around her as safe as he can. And, and he'll like, jump into the weaves of air that she is kind of boosting him and then he slices through a trollock with it I, I thought that was that was a pretty cool way of visualizing uh beyond the much more obviously uh intimate scene of them in the bathtub yeah. together <laughs> where she heats the the water with the one power yeah but even yeah I, I liked the sense of their intimacy even that bath scene I thought it wasn't um it wasn't over the top. Like you just got almost like a old married couple that mm-hmm. like you just got this sense that they'd been together for a long time and they had each other's backs and the same thing with that fight scene. Um, yeah. Uh, I did notice that because we see the two rivers attack before we see um, Rand and his dad get attacked in their house, that kind of changes up the perspective a little bit. Like it makes the um, mm. the attack on their like little farmhouse less impactful because we had already seen the attack going on in the town so that um in my mind that scene was so much more downplayed the the scene with uh rand and his father um but but it just makes sense of the chronological order of the show yeah i felt exactly the same thing uh and 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 i guess it seems like a worthy trade-off because it does make sense to interrupt the dance that seems like cinematically the bigger thing to interrupt than suddenly just the door bursting open and and i also wonder if that scene would not have been as powerful either because and and this was a more subtle change it's not uh everything's not covered in snow here there's no sign of the lingering late winter and rand and tam trudging back through the snow to their house and the wind howling and they're like you know they're like in this cozy house in against the fire and having their soup and then the door just opens in a howling wind of snow and this monster standing there i I feel like there's less of the impact to that and less of the impact to to doing stuff with like rand like we don't see any of rand like uh creeping or or like crawling from the farm back to the house or attaching land land not land tam to to the uh to the makeshift carriage or hauling him back through the snow to emmons field maybe i wonder if just on some level because it wouldn't have been as exciting without the the late winter element uh in here everything is like beautiful and autumnal here kind of uh right it's like um looks like we're just changing into fall almost yeah that is that was an interesting choice for them to not make it as wintry um i also the i think there were two elements also in that scene that i that i kind of just like my mind missed were one when the trollic kind of speaks to rand because i that's Mm. an interesting aspect and maybe they chose not to do that because it wouldn't have come off right with the creature that they've created um i could see it maybe being Mm. cheesy or something um but the other thing is and i'm sure this will have to get woven in at some other point but that's the first time where we find out um where we get the mumblings of tam that he is maybe not uh, Rand's father. 
Yeah, did we even get that? Am I no? So that just was totally huh. missing. Um, which maybe that will come at some other time, or maybe it won't. I guess we don't know. Yeah, they they have changed up the position of a lot of those little character revelation beats to different places, and then gotten to them in some other roundabout way, which makes sense. But and also we don't have because they opened as a prologue with the Red Aja instead of the prologue from the novel. We don't have the context of. Lose Theron, the first dragon, and everything. I assume that will be saved. They're they're not going to not do that scene, I bet. Like, that's going to come later in the season. I imagine one of these episodes will open with with, uh, the creation of Dragon Mount and him wandering through the halls and all all of that um, context. But that struck me as the other um, pretty sizable change to the delivery of the story points early on. And I guess coming full circle, yeah, I I mean, the casting, we said it based on the interviews before, but I really feel like these these actors know who these characters are in a really good way and were really well cast into into each of them. I'm I'm actually suddenly much more sad uh, that we're not going to have Barney Harris as Matt in season two because he is such a good Matt so far, I feel like, like feels really perfect to me in the role um, and so did the other like so did like par- I, I momentarily forgot that until you said it so now yeah <laughs> I'm bummed out all over again <laughs> uh which I'm hopeful that'll fit in well in that there are major character changes he go through that actually kind of make it make sense that his appearance would be changing as he is being sort of changed as we are seeing where, where we are in the book by uh, by this cursed dagger that that he's carrying. Um, but I did, I, I, I loved um, Marcus Rutherford as Perrin. He just is Perrin so well, like it, he embodies it. He, that, that, that seriousness and sadness and like thoughtfulness that, that he all, like always looks like his face is scrunched up, like processing things. And now he has some even heavier things to, to process of accidentally having killed his own wife in, in this fight with the Trollocs, which I don't know if we actually said that was what happened to her when she when she died that it's by by his own hand and axe um and uh yeah let's see i really like zoe robbins as nynaeve um who i have hinted at as my favorite character in the in the books um although she didn't really become my favorite character until probably book two or three and i feel and all these characters to me feel like we kind of said they're starting this show more at the place they end Eye of the World, I think, like with uh, because they're a few years older and they have more they're less like children. They have more of that growth. Nynaeve is kind of in the same place, I feel like, for the most part. But we just have more of an understanding of where she's coming from and and uh, and and what her uh, relationship to the two rivers is and the weight that she sort of carries and and the the hostility that she feels towards Moraine. Um, yeah, I am. I zero complaints about Rosamund Pike as Moraine. I think she's doing a wonderful job so far. Uh, Daniel Henney as Lan. I'm, I'm way into not just because he's extremely hot and and <laughs> like fits into the role <laughs> physically well. Um, uh, yeah, and even Josh uh, Josh Stradowski as as Rand. I think he's well well cast, although still probably the least interesting character of. of these here so far yeah but he's maybe he's bland in the book as well so in the in my yeah. opinion so uh i i felt like it was kind of it was fitting to me yeah it was and even this uh no you keep going i was just gonna say even the small side roles we only see um johan myers as Padden fane for like two or three scenes 
But he was so, he felt like the moment he does that kind of like uh, leery um, grin t- about taking advantage of Matt's stolen goods when they're doing that little little exchange there. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is perfectly cast. There's something about his like huge, almost like rodent like smile that he does that feels perfect for Pat and Fane. We don't see him again in the first two episodes, except for when the Trollocs are attacking. He's kind of backing away with a sort of like he, I Something's going on with him. The, the look on his face, you see, as as he is just kind of like watching everything going on and not helping, not really like running away or anything, but sort of backing off. You get the sense that we're going to see him again. I feel like the, the camera is letting us know, even if we don't get those later scenes from the novel with him um, showing up again yet. And as we said, no, uh, no Tom so far, who is one of my favorites as well. And we'll have to see what, what he's doing. Um, episode, episode two, uh, this is where things, like I like I said, they did start to feel a little too rushed to me. I really missed, I, I, I really like episode two. And we get a lot of great scenes brought to life in really vivid ways from the book. Like the, the fairy scene I thought was really appropriately dramatic. A really well, like, you know, we get everything from the... The, them getting on the ferry just in time to get across the river and then the, the all the Trollocs showing up and one getting shoved in the water. The the extremely Nazgul drama of the Fade uh, showing up on the horse between them and then uh, creepily opening its n- enormous mouth to, to shriek and leer at them. And then the sinking of the ferry, which is even more amped up than in Eye of the World because it involves the ferry guy getting killed. And what I thought was a really economical way of then for them to have a conversation about the three oaths and and what it means for like Moraine's morality and what she's willing to do at this point. Did uh, any any thoughts on any of that stuff? Yeah, um, I I thought the as they're having those arguments right away. I thought the fairy scene was well done and like prompting the moral questions that kind of get brought up several times in the book and. Um, even uh, I thought, like you said, it was clever to have the man kind of hanging on and she essentially kills him, though she didn't want to or intend to, um, because mm-hmm. it just pushes the morality question a little bit harder. Uh, whereas, I don't know, when it's just the fairy being sunk, it's kind of obvious, like, yes, she did what had to be done. Um, and I, I think that it it brought the question up a little bit uh, in a little bit of a larger way to have also taken the fairy uh captain down with his with his fairy um but it's still obviously what had to be done but i i like the tension that it brought there i thought that scene was really good um and yeah just the the kind of army looming over on the other side of the river was a really strong visual both for eric and me it was like holy cow right 300 trollocs is a lot of trollocs like just getting more of the sense of what 300 of these monsters looks like uh you know something that was we never see them more than a few at a time in the novel really so it's hard to get the same uh, well until much later when they're on the plains and there's the big army chasing them i guess and when when the, when moraine does the earthquake and all that before shadar logoth uh or they're, they're pronouncing it shadar logoth on on the show um but we we skipped all that and this right we skipped berlin we're skipping through most of the towns and the downtime we skipped the meeting of min another character i'm sad that we don't get to see uh, showing up here early, though I'm sure she will be later. Um, And because we skipped the towns, we have to have an encounter with the White Cloaks in the wilderness, kind of like along the road, which I thought was a pretty good way of still getting that in and condensing it visually. And interesting that 
the subtlety, that Moraine subtlety does work in this one. She doesn't have to resort to uh, trying to scare them off with the one power. I think one, because there's way more of the White Cloaks in the scene here. And it too, because it gives a really good excuse to explain just how much she can omit and bend the truth without lying uh and, and that whole scene i was like everything she's saying i'm like i guess that how is oh i guess that is technically true let me think of the ways in which that's technically true uh which was fun because then Egwene, of course right after is like confronting her about you well, oh yeah so much for not being able to break the oaths you were lying to them at which point moraine explains something else we i don't think we've known in the in eye of the world which is that she physically cannot break the oath. It's not like just something that they that they swear to. It's something that there is bound in the one power that the Aes Sedai had to concede to to not get during at the end of the war with Ardor Hawkwing when he when the entire world was basically besieging the one tower and that would have been the end of the Aes Sedai if they hadn't agreed to this peace where they agreed to take on these three oaths. Um, the show is being pretty. I felt like pretty quick and ep- economical about giving us lots of lore in in ways that are not very long or droning. They just get it in real quick and efficiently and and move on. Uh, yeah, I I felt like um, more. I didn't so much feel like any of the plot elements were particularly rushed uh, in and of themselves. Maybe it was more just like a general pacing. Like there, the book has such a steady like you know plodding along. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said at the introduction, how it's like you know you could be on this backpack journey through Europe and <laughs> yeah, yeah, encountering yeah. all these <laughs> monsters like that. That is exactly embodying the book for me. Um, and because they were have been so economical with the plot that I feel I do feel like the second episode it was just like then this then this then this um yeah. and, and I kind of missed the the slowness of the journey just a little bit um yeah even I just wanted I feel like if they had just given us 10 minutes in Berlin like uh, like a bit of rest by the fire um you know may, that would have been a place they could have introduced Tom like entertaining the inn and and then you know having the first nightmare dreams there they, I think that was another thing that economically switched to the wilderness. They switched the rat dream to a bat dream, which works just as well. It's just as gross and creepy for, for the, each of them to be vomiting up bats in their <laughs> dream and then the bats all being dead by the hundreds with broken necks. But I did miss something of the feeling of safety briefly because I never once felt, uh, and this is something Dan has mentioned late, later in the book, a, a kind of the opposite. He feels like the party gets rested too often and finds like places of refuge too often. I, I wanted at least one in in these first two ep- episodes here. It's like we're kind of breakneck without like a moment of, oh, my God, let's feel like we're OK briefly. But I fully appreciate how much story they have to get through. There are 14 books that they want to book through. And I assume about a season each. Right. <laughs> it seems at, at this rate um, or maybe more. Maybe they'll try to do a couple books uh, per season. Um uh, and even even like the getting into Shatter Logoth, we had a lot of that condensed down. We got rid of more death as a character entirely. Moraine is out of commission here, which is also a thing that is changing the dynamics that she is just unconscious for large swaths of this episode, um, which sort of works because she seems to not want to go into there under any cost. But Lan is like the one who makes the decision and that that's where they have to go. Um, uh, let me sorry. One sec. I'll just make a note in myself. In, in the call here, Dan, we're just wrapping up episode two real quick, uh, and then we then we'll get right into the book if that sounds good. It will take probably like five five minutes more to get through. Uh, but the events we're going to talk about the last five minutes are ones that are uh, book events uh, and anyway. Um, but I'll, but I'll wait to introduce you if you want to stay on quiet quiet for the second until we finish. Um, 
So yeah, so we get rushed into Shatter Logoth, which looks pretty incredible and daunting here. You get the haunting sense of this abandoned city, I thought, and the fact that you get the soundtrack, um, as the characters note, like there's no insects, there's no birds, everything is just dead, silent. Um, we get Mashadar, and we get rid of Mordeth, we get the dagger, all, all those beats happen. And what did you think of the way uh, Mashadar or Mashadar was, was rendered in this one in, instead of the mist? You know, I thought it was kind of cool. I in the book I more felt like um it was it was like the smoke monster in Lost. That's kind of how I was picturing it. Mm. Um yeah, yeah. and so maybe they had to change it up just so that it wasn't the smoke monster in Lost. Um but I I thought it was it was creepy and it was quick and it the the way that they showed that horse kind of being like disintegrated by it. Um Oh, Keeley's not going to be happy I know. about that, I that certainly, <laughs> I certainly thought of Keely in that moment. I was yeah. like, not the horse, but it, oh. but it gave us a sense of like what this can do and what they're running from. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought that whole scene was, was creepy and unique. Um, and I didn't really mind the omission of more death in that whole section because it sort of annoyed me anyway. So I, I thought that yeah. they spent the appropriate amount of time there and seemed to like, again, just be very efficient in getting in like exactly what needed to happen. Perry, need, mm -hmm. Perry needed to get that dagger and they and they needed to split up the crew, basically. So yeah, that's it, it's all done. Like, yeah, like we've both been saying efficiently, like visually the way that, well, Mashadar is, which is no longer missed, which is this sort of like almost two-dimensional blackness that travels along the ground and the walls, which I thought was very cool in when, when the camera goes above head, like the drone shots. And it almost looks like cartoon in a good way of like the color just draining out of the world or like film stock burning it. And that can just physically separate them. Like they just get physically separated. There's no way through this thing because we've seen it disintegrate the horse. And it's so much clearer here uh, that the city is whispering and entrancing and sort of bringing Matt to the dagger in a way that is not just like the idiot kids uh, deciding, let's go exploring around around this completely haunted city and in the middle of the night, right? I feel like that leaves a lot more sympathy uh, for for Matt, especially than than maybe uh, those of us who were uh, who hadn't read the book before felt at that point, because it was it just it like I was sort of making the argument. Uh, I think it's an enchantment. I think, but but Jordan does not really make clear that it's something really sinister and magical going on in the way that this does uh, with the with the whispers there. Um, and we get these really I thought good character beats. In the brief moments of camping with uh, with with Rand and Egwene, having that moment of like looking over the city and that brief exchange of like what this is doing to them and their relationship and where the world is bringing them, and similarly with with Perrin and Matt and conversations about um, about where they are and about what they've gone through and their families. Uh, and again, you know that stuff with Matt that I don't think you can know reading Eye of the World until Matt's perspective, like what what he what the, the what he feels about what's been left behind. Um, and even back to the first episode, all the scenes we get with what his relationship with his sisters is, and sort of his he's sort of you know portrayed as a degenerate gambler, but who also cares deeply about his family and taking care of his siblings that his parents are not really taking care about, and they're sort of his real motivation for wanting to get back there so badly. Um, we do need to move on to the book, and, and Dan is just about ready to join us. Uh, do you any final thoughts on episode two or what you're hoping to see in, in the next episode? Um, I guess I don't have too much else to say. It was exciting so far, and um, I think it's just really interesting to see what they're doing with 
this work that they're able to kind of look at the larger scope of and then create a cohesive story, which is something Jordan can't really do because he wrote the books in order, I'm assuming. And um, yeah, it didn't, didn't have a, a whole, maybe he had an outline and ideas, but it's a different, yeah. uh, it's a different writing activity to be able to take this whole series of books and be like, okay, where, where are we going to get, get all this content in? And um, it's exciting to see. Yeah, that was, I had, I had a moment near the end of episode two when they're like jumping off the walls of Shadar Logoth, like rather than getting past it and then getting swept in the river where I'm like, ah, this feels so much like it is benefiting from what you just said. This is like another draft. This is like a whole team of editors coming in and saying, okay, what if we wanted to tell this story as an action adventure story and get rid of so much of the, of like, not always cruft, sometimes cruft, but like, what can we combine? What can we be economical with for film? And I, I feel like they're doing a really good job in these first two episodes of, of getting us where we need to be. Uh, we are joined now by Dan Wimble, or excuse me, uh, sorry, <laughs> Dan, Dan, Dan Katinsky. I'll, I'll let it out a little bit on there. Uh, Dan Katinsky coming on the call. Hey, Dan. And uh, we've just wrapped up our discussion of the first two episodes of the show, which, Dan, I believe you're having a big watch party tomorrow, making up for not being able to get into that pre-premiere with the the massive turnout at, at the theater. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're, we're ready to hop right in if you are. We can get uh, right into these chapters on the story, which align pretty well with with things on the show. Last time we talked about chapters 26 to 30 of the first book in the series, The Eye of the World. Nynaeve intensified her search for her charges. Moraine once again made harsh choices. And Tom stayed behind to proverbially hold the door so that Matt and Rand could escape the merge roll. Swarms of the Dark Ones, beast servants, descend on Perrin and Egwene. And after a temporary reprieve, they were caught by a more dangerous foe yet in the Lord Captain of the White Cloaks. Today, we're digging into chapters 31 to 35, where we learn what becomes of Rand and Matt on the long, road to Camelon. Uh, so before we dive into chapter 31, tell me what you think you two. The, I think these are of all the sets of chapters we have done, the five where we're in the same perspective the whole time. And each and these are all really of a piece in a way I feel like, is it more efficient to keep doing as we've been doing for this? these five chapters are chapter by chapter, recap each one and talk about, or should we just like recap all five of these and talk about Rand and Matt's journey to Camelon? What, what do you think uh, is it makes more sense for the way that these are written here? Because they're, they're all about them running from dark friends and from village to village and, and getting to, to Camelon, right? Thoughts? Uh, yeah. It's, okay. To me, it seemed, uh, it was just an interesting section choice that we read because it was very cohesive. They're just like on their journey. It's Rand and Matt. They encounter lots of inns and lots of dark friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. An incre in increasingly justified paranoia for Matt that kind of starts out with him being like hostile even to the people who are trying to be friendly to them um, and seeming like an enormous asshole as he descends in this paranoia that becomes increasingly justified as like almost every town they go to as dark friends waiting for them and around every corner and uh, you know it's the thing are you really paranoid if everyone is actually out to get you <laughs> and even the people who aren't out to get them are getting increasingly suspicious and hostile and we get the sense that everything in the world is going pretty badly in 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 more ways than we were necessarily aware of back in the two rivers uh so i guess i'll, I'll quick uh, just try to run through some of the major points of chapters 31 through 35 and then we'll just get into talking about it uh in chapter one chapter 31 pay, play for your supper Brenda Matt are like heading east working at farms in exchange for food or a place to sleep they have this uh this 
we get the sense they've done this with a couple families, but they, they you know, earn their keep with the Grinwell family farm, which is the first point where Rand pulls out his flute and plays for their entertainment and much applause and the unwanted attention of the family's eldest daughter. We get, we get this almost sort of um, uh, very quaint thing where the reason that they're having to flee the Grinwells where they could have stayed longer is that they really don't want trouble with the overprotective dad about the fact that that his daughter really has the hots for for Rand in particular and and Rand doesn't seem like anything is going to happen but you know they're really worried about um getting chased out of town for this which they kind of you know decide to leave preemptively they realize that they can earn their living playing and juggling at inns instead and that's kind of what they keep doing for the next bunch of chapters the first big climax of which is at the inn in Four Kings, where they're beset on all sides here. The, the greedy innkeeper and his huge muscle goons seem like they're going to do something to try and rob them in the night. And, and uh, so they're trying to sneak out of there. But that gets complicated because there's a really wealthy looking merchant who's followed them from Whitebridge. So they're uh, who turns out, of course, to be uh, a dark friend. And so they're be- <laughs> they're they're really with their backs against the wall between a rock and a hard place here. The merchant Howell Goad reveals himself as a dark friend, offers them power and status as dreadlords if they submit to the dark one. This is where we're learning about some of the things the dark one can offer you, like resurrection from the dead, immortality, power beyond human compare. Uh, and then there's like this really tense moment where it seems like a goad is done trying to negotiate and he and his uh, armed servants are going to break down the door. And then lightning strikes the inn like right through the window with these iron bars blasting down the door. Um potentially killing Goad and his goons. We really don't know the because Rand and Matt don't stick around to find out because um, uh, it blasts through the wall. They get out of there, but Matt is blinded by the lightning. They're fleeing into the rain. It's all hyper dramatic. I thought these were really, really, you know, dark and stormy night type scenes that we got a lot of here. Um, lots and lots of high fantasy adventure drama, constantly escaping by the skin of their teeth. Um, they more dark friends chase them out of the next two inns. Uh, sometimes it's like at one point, like a kid, basically like it, like a, who, well, they're sort of thinking of him as a kid because they're starting to be forced to grow up a lot, but he's kind of their age, but he's just like a local layabout, like, like rich kid, um, who tries to, you know, just talk and negotiate with them, but they're fleeing. They hitch a ride on carts. They're trying to blend in with all these people by the thousands. I think we get the sense who are flocking to see the captured false dragon Loghain in, in Camelin as most people are taking to calling him, though we learned that a lot of people don't think he's a false dragon. And there are increasingly hostile tensions between those who think he is and he's not. Uh, they have random mats by a Murdral who's who seems to be looking for them at one point, kind of disguised in cloak, sort of like, again, like the Nazgul at the beginning of, of Fellowship. It's offered a reward out for them. It's telling people that they stole a Heronmark sword. They hitch a ride with a farmer who like tells them all about the goings on in, in Camelin and Andor, what's going on politically and everything. They arrive in Camelin. They get to the inn that Tom told them to hide in. They're wowed by the city. They learn a lot about Tom's past life and about the political situation here, about the political situation in the whole kingdom of Andor, which is seeming really bad and really tenuous as it turns out. And they learn things about Queen Morghese and and what uh, Tom represented to her. So that's the lowdown. We're, we did it all at once this time. <laughs> yeah, Katie, Katie, Dan, uh, th- thoughts on these chapters and the overall arc of, of what we're seeing and learning throughout these here. 
Let's see. I was I was interested in these chapters. Uh, I I felt like um, where previously I was all into um, uh, Perrin and, and Egwene's journey. Um, I I felt like I was really in the scenes here. So there was something captivating about what was going on and their continuous struggles, um, and the fact that they're both becoming. Um, I don't know, things are getting harder for Rand and Matt and they seem to be coming less and less able to deal with it. Like it seems mm-hmm. like all these pressures are really pulling them down like physically and mentally um, and they're kind of just back and forth trying to hold each other up. So I, I think there's like a nice, uh, you know, symbol of their friendship here that that they, they're not too judgmental with each other and they are just trying to do the best they can and keep the other one alive. Um, and I like that aspect to it. Um, I got... Yeah, there there were a couple of scenes on that that I found like kind of touching in the two of them and what they said to each other in a way that I haven't felt before um, about their relationship, that they're feeling we're getting more of that deepening friendship and what they share despite how awful things have become and what's happening to Matt. Sorry, I, I cut you off of starting something else there. No, that, yeah, that, I, I agree. So I think that kind of pulled me through. Um, I, I was getting a little bit like, okay, we're at another inn. There's another dark friend. <laughs> um, so that like droned a little bit. And it's interesting because I think because we like, we see Trollocs in the very beginning of the book and they're so fierce and scary. And so like, and then we see like the, uh, Baalza bum, uh, guy in the dreams. And I mean, compared to those characters, the dark friends are just like, they just pale in comparison. So it's kind Mm. of like these like, uh, annoying gnats that just keep pestering them and trying to bring them down. Um, yeah. And, and it's almost that, yeah, that gnat like thing where, it's the attrition of it. It's so many days and weeks of this that they are just getting worn down physically, mentally. They're like burning up with fever. Both of them by the end, they're not sleeping. They're they're traveling all the time. There's something. Um, uh, well, Matt gets blinded at, at the one point. Yeah, like uh, this is this is like the slow war uh, against them going on here. And we do still have the threat of the fade showing up at various points, though it does seem maybe we're learning the deeper we get into densely populated human civilization. Yeah, maybe the less of a th- direct threat the the Fade and the Trollocs are, and the Fade seems less able to easily find them uh, in, in these crowds. So yeah, Dan, uh, you've probably been our most vocal critic of the editorial decisions uh, that maybe Jordan is making or making in concert with with, with Harriet uh, McDougal here to have so many chapters, as, as Katie was just saying, of like we have so you, you, you were feeling like it was a lot of in chapters before. I do get the sense in which maybe if you, somebody was putting this novel out in today's market, somebody would need to say, OK, Jordan, how many chapters do we need on on repeating the same dynamic before it starts to feel like, OK, pick pick two, maybe, or even three, pick three dark friends, uh, Jordan, and have them escalate. Three dark friend scenes, and that's a good number. Maybe we don't need five or six uh, at this point. Um, the, did you, uh, the, did you, like, did you, were you able to appreciate these chapters at all, or are you just, are you feeling too dragged along? 
It was a it was a mixture for me because I definitely agree. He's running like he reuses the same kind of setting over and over again, and it seems to be the in is what he gravitates back to. Um, it it's just becoming a reoccurring theme throughout. So that that part is feeling a little repetitive, but at the same time, one thing I'm appreciating is the development of his characters finally. Yeah. So that might make it a little fresher for me because it's like finally Rand seems to be growing as a person. Like Matt Matt is becoming a little more hostile and kind of like snappy, mm-hmm. but like. Rand seems to be maturing a little bit. He's more aware of his surroundings. He's learned how to like fend for himself. He's like playing for his like food and he's kind of taking a role that he didn't have to be for. So what, whereas he felt more just like a farm boy and was kind of useless and kind of dead weight for the group. Yeah. He's starting to like kind of pull his weight. Um, They're both getting a little wiser about kind of being like, I think at the start of the novel, they both would have been like screwed in so many more occasions. And they're kind of starting to pick up on that. They're understanding that not everyone's friendly towards them. They're starting to be a little smarter about their choices. Matt is still probably the most foolish out of the initial uh, two Rivers characters. He's still making brash decisions based on how he's feeling at the moment. Like if he's hungry, he wants to eat versus like the what that could kind of put them in. Whereas Rand is making decisions ahead of time mm-hmm. based off the situation, not how he's feeling or what he's wanting. So Matt still seems to be the most immature out of the, the initial group. But Although like he does an interesting dynamic. He does have the excuse of, I think at this point being quite literally shown to be infected by whatever this dagger is doing to him and how and how it's just changing. I don't know if Rand has Rand put that together at this point. Like he knows something's wrong with Matt, but he hasn't really linked it to Shadar Logoth, even We've, though even though he's said at multiple points. Ever since Shadar Logoth, Matt's been yeah. yeah, they 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 keep talking about the clutching of the dagger and how he's always having his hand on it. Um I wasn't actually fully sure if it was just him kind of getting more paranoid and kind of um tired of like the the journeying and kind of just like being on the run and sleeping out in the rain and um eating scraps and all that stuff. Um I think we've talked about this before with the the magic element or like kind of the enchantedness. I can't mm-hmm. tell if it's just the character kind of like begrudgingly like getting snappier and kind of more irritated as they go on and getting paranoid because they're constantly getting attacked or if it's yeah. Because that all could be very natural versus like you're, you're saying kind of like the his enchanted dagger kind of changing his attitude and kind of incur- like um, altering his state of mind. So I don't know. I, I didn't fully pick up on it, whether or not it was the dagger. If he was just kind of descending into kind of a, a madness around their journey and kind of that aspect of it. I felt like I kept reading that just like Lord of the Rings, like with the ring, like when um, mm. when he would like stick his hand in his pocket to like feel the ring. And that was just like yep. a sign that he was getting more and more like infected by the, the powers of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I I pretty firmly believe at this point, um, coming back to this novel, that, that Jordan tries to be too subtle and hold too many things back for future revelations of, of character. Like everything from character motivations to what is going on with, with magic in this world to political context of scenes. I think he's a little too fond in this first book uh, of saving those things for like the very end of this book, things that will, um, that we have not even gotten to yet. And then revealing things after the show, which, um, yeah, I think, I think it takes away some of the power when you have, when you go from being a little ambiguous and mysterious to just like not even being, not even being established at all necessarily that, that I think is my main takeaway that I think he does better in the ensuing books, like starting with, with the dragon reborn. And maybe that's also because maybe he, maybe this is an editing thing where, or revision thing where he was discovery writing and maybe he didn't decide a lot of these things until later in the, like, you know, as he's drafting this first draft later, I'm realizing, oh, you know, I'm going to have that be because of these other things that went down earlier. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if we'll ever be able to tell that for sure, but maybe that will become more clear 
what he said about Rand feeling savvier and wiser. Uh, we even get a thing of him realizing the one kind of questionable thing that Rand is still doing is carrying around this Heron Mark sword, which is drawing attention and speculation in a lot of places. And he has this whole thing um, that, I, that I noted where he's aware that he could be leaving a clear trail for the Murdral if Fades needed that kind of trail. Um, but he has this firm belief that he just like, he can't. This is like his one link to Tam as his dad. And this like he knows irrational belief he has that as long as he still wears the sword, there's some connection between Tam and him that gives him the right to still call Tam his dad. Uh, to call him father. So we know that's like something that he's deeply struggling with there, which kind of feels like, you know, it's an author patch. It's probably like something Jordan is being like, well, why, you know, why, why is he still wearing the sword at all times? And I, I feel like it's a pretty solid excuse for why he has um, this obvious liability, which then when they get to Camelin, he finally like wraps up in the cloth that he gets there. Yeah, just, but that it's so funny to me because there's so many like dilemmas or like kind of situations which are done in people's heads and nobody else has been involved with that. Like nobody else has questioned uh, like Tam being his dad, except for like, mm. it's all in Bran's head. Like they've never had this discourse outside of his like conversation he's having with himself in his head. Because everybody keeps secrets best, from each other. <laughs> they do, but like nobody else has like kind of challenged that view. It's only Rand mm -hmm. thinking that. So it just, it's kind of fascinating to me because it's all just been in his head, his back and forth there and i don't know some of it feels like a little irrational or like kind of strange that he's like heavily questioning this and i, I get like he's he's getting smarter and he's realizing that he is somehow adopted or from a different um past or upbringing than he actually expected yeah it just it, it seems a little funny to me it's just like he's constantly like he's my dad and like they're still doing that though he's just like constantly like throwing that out there like he's he's very paranoid about that that fact i was feeling similarly just maybe one of the times in this section when he said that I was like, okay, yeah, who are you even arguing with at this point? Like, but I, I think yeah. maybe the larger issue is that nothing has happened with that plot line. Like since the very beginning, like there were, have been mm. no other kinds of like yeah. clues or seeds planted or like a character saying something that triggered, uh, I don't know. So like, maybe that is the issue is like, it's a little bit dry because nothing has freshened it up. <laughs> Maybe that's why, like to our point last week, why Perrin's and Egwene's uh, like plotline and arc is more fascinating because Brands and Matt, it, it just feels kind of repetitive and kind of is following a lot of. I mean, it, it's a little more engaging. I like the character development. Um, I kind of like that they're getting like like wiser and starting to be able to fend. Like it, it's just the two of them, so we have a little bit of a different dynamic than the group. And the so and the main and the main showdown, I feel like with Howl Goad and Four Kings and Shadow, pretty cool chapter, pretty exciting. I I, I thought. That yeah, thing. a yeah. lot more exciting, but it's like it's like the same thing as before, just like yeah. amped up a little bit. I'm wondering, to your point, maybe it was just like an editing or he could have gone back and was having a hard time removing those chapters. But I feel like we could have taken these ones, cut out the earlier in scenes mm -hmm. I, one aspect that had me laugh because it was just like problematic and also just kind of like almost making fun of itself was Rand pointing out that he's like, oh, look, it's not a fat innkeeper this time. It's a skinny <laughs> one. I was I, oh, like, my God. Yeah. I was like, are, is this satire on itself, though? It's like, we finally found, like, a different-looking <laughs> innkeeper. And then in chapter 30, 35, uh, in Cambland, he's vowing never to trust uh, anyone but a fat innkeeper again. It's like that trope and kind of, like, the problematic nature of it just keeps growing into this, like, really <laughs> almost, like, satire of itself. And I'm just like, what's going on here? Like, that and then, like, the, the the treatment of women in the inn was a little, like, ugh. <laughs> oh, just, the what? yeah. It, the, it, mm. it doesn't add to your liking Rand. Isn't it Rand or Matt that's, like, questioning why they let them 
do that to them or something. It's like, yeah, because everyone what like likes having abuse or kind of getting groped. Like that's totally the women's choice or mm-hmm. like, yeah, I don't know. I was just like, oh, <laughs> there's some cringy aspects of this chapter. I almost felt like Jordan was trying to have Rand be the good guy in those observations by making a comment on it, but it just mm-hmm. didn't quite work. He, the, yeah, the comment. Because he's victim blaming immediately. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it was, it was victim blaming. <laughs> it didn't work at all. Like it just like it went from like Rand has a way of doing that to all the women instead of like actually being supportive or being on their side. It turns out to be like victim blaming or kind of like nasty towards like the female characters, even if it wasn't supposed to be. It just like his thoughts come out really poorly. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know if that's just like he's extremely immature and kind of a little bit Mm -hmm. sexist. I, I, I don't know. It's a real failure failure of empathy here, too, given he's in a situation where they're having to do all sorts of desperate things to survive and occasionally steal stuff and all this. And he's like, gee, I can't imagine why anyone would put up with this working here. It's like, really? You can't you can't extrapolate on the most basic level from your situation to wonder why people might put up with abuse in this town to to make a living in this and what has clearly been shown to be kind of a desperate situation um, for a lot of the countryside at the moment. Um, I guess while we're still on the ins, uh, we did have a question related to the performances they're doing um, at these places and the musical stuff, which which we haven't really talked about much in a while, except with regard to the show earlier today, which I think is doing some interesting things with music we'll come back to. Eric writes in to ask, what's up with all these songs having different names? It's like each town we go to, they're known by another title or with alternate characters and lyrics. Is this going to be plot significant? Is it something I should be keeping track of? Uh, and if you want to write in a question like Eric, you can send it to contact at wattcast.net. Uh, have you two had, had any thoughts on these, um, on the songs throughout these chapters? Like um, for me, well, my page number wouldn't help because we're all reading different versions of the book, but where they're talking about uh, Jolly Jame was Rhea's fling here and had been Colors of the Sun at an earlier stop. Some names stayed the same, others changed with 10 miles distance, and he had learned new, tong- new songs too. And there's a whole paragraph about that again and again. Here. Any any thoughts on Eric's question? Yeah, my my impression was it was I feel like every author has their indulgences and <laughs> his was so like some authors it's like really like spending a whole chapter describing a feast and talking about food and it's like not relevant to the plot at all, but they enjoy writing about food and how delicious it looks and all that. So like I'm specifically thinking Redwall here. Like, I knew I knew that you were subtweeting Brian Jakes. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> just like I, I, I enjoyed the description, but it's such a fun, non plot relevant thing he does in all of his books is like his fantasy animal series where he describes these feasts and it's like I've, I've grown to realize that a lot of authors have these indulgences and my assumption was that Robert Jordan just liked music and having this element and kind of like the songs was like a little bit of like world flavor that he'd like throwing in so I mean it could I don't have the, the I don't know what's gonna be in store but it sounds like like the music aspect seems like a nice little flavor he adds to his stories that mm-hmm. doesn't in my opinion I don't think it's really going to become plot significant. But Katie, curious if what you were thinking. I there. thought that was a really nice response and so thoughtful. I I've just gotten sick of reading the different names, so I like skip through <laughs> the paragraphs, and it makes me laugh. Fair, fair. Almost like there's like in my head, I've made it a satirical element that like, oh, here we go again with a list of song names <laughs> I don't care it. about. But I guess ultimately, I've decided it's not going to impact the plot, so that's why. Um, and I maybe it's just a a token to the differences in these different places that he's traveling to, which I can understand. Um, but I just am like sick of reading them a little bit. It's it's made me like 
Oh, sorry. No, it, it's made me kind of like appreciate how important music is. Like I was like thinking about this. I was like, do Indians really care that much about having entertainment and, and music? Mm -hmm. And thinking about in the current age, how like we have like like DJs and we have music playing everywhere and how we take that mm -hmm. for granted that we just have like MP3s you can throw on like and like like digital sound. So I don't I don't have been seeing a lot of authors use this like storytelling aspect of like, oh, in a fantasy series without like modern technology, it's like you have bards and people playing music and you have to like entertainment needs to be live all the time because yeah, you don't, don't have, even like, have a TV at home. You don't have record. Yeah. So it's like their only source of entertainment aside from drinking is when these like musicians come in. So I'm like, it's it's kind of a fascinating aspect to me because I'm like, I guess it would be a lot more relevant to have that if you don't have like live. Like we we love music and, and culture so much. And I think we take it for granted. We have like digital sounds and like digital mm -hmm. music. So it's I found that part kind of fascinating that they're making their way across and like kind of making up for they have to kind of be resourceful with like with the Tom, like the, with the skill sets Tom's given them because they don't have the Aes Sedai just kind of throwing coins at everyone. So yeah. I found that kind of interesting. They had to like learn a trade to be able to like keep moving along and actually like stay in places because not everyone's going to be like super like generous and giving them a free place. Yeah, I, I like that narrative tool, too. And I think you're, you're right on with the his, uh, historical value of live entertainment. And they even explicitly say like some of these small towns they go to. The smaller ones may not have had anybody who could play the flute or juggle in like a year uh, because they don't happen to have any good local singers or mu musicians or people don't really have a lot of instruments. Um, I do feel, Katie, uh, to, to your your feeling of like not even reading the names anymore because there's so many of them. It's a, maybe Jordan taking an incremental step past Tolkien, who would not just give you the names, but the full lyrics to every single one of these songs every single time they're encountered in Fellowship of the Ring. So at least maybe Jordan is sparing us um, some. He's given us a few lyrics here and there, but he doesn't give us like, oh, next two pages. Here's some big italicized blocks of Tolkien lyrics. Uh, the only thing I would add to all the great points you both brought up, I think we can read this particular feature that Eric brings up about the same songs having different names and different versions of the same stories in different places. I think we can generously and probably accurately also read that as a metaphor for the way this whole world seems to be in a set of cycles as people see it, that's how they conceptualize their metaphysical belief and, and the whole idea of the Wheel of Time and these recurring ages. They, they read each one as an echo of the others. New names we have learned, even for things in our world, like, uh, like last time we were talking about the appearance of, wait a second, King Arthur exists in the history of this world, Arthur Pendragon, and, and, and a very similar story, except um, with, with him trying to build Camelot. And instead of the witch that, that threatens his kingdom being... Um, Morgana uh, or Queen or Queen Mab or some combination of the two. In this case, it's the Aes Sedai and all that. Um, so we have gotten hints of like new names for things in our world and of stories and myths being repeated in, in different ways and vaguely similar. Like, okay, wait a minute. Um, Satan was brought into the world. At some point, some there was a paradise that somebody mucked up and came in. So we have those resonances. And I think probably that's the one connection I would make. The one thing that it's doing that is bigger than just like local flavor and Jordan's own love of these songs as a setting detail. But I think that's 100% accurate uh, what you were saying, Dan, and what both of you are, were saying that he just he just likes this and he, it's the kind of flavor he likes. And there's probably more of it than we need <laughs> through, throughout all these scenes here. Uh, a little bit uh, over-establishing the point. Uh, but yeah, th thanks for writing in, Eric. And again, if anybody else wants to uh, or to comment on things, if you don't have a question per se, or to correct some of our past mistakes and especially my past mistakes as, as the holder of often inaccurate lore, uh, that's contact at Wattcast.net.
Anything else we should get to uh, with this whole sequence of chapters? There's certainly a lot of reveals in Camelin when we do finally get there. I thought the the lightning aspect was interesting, and it's kind of like either hinting at, like, they, they seem to be, I can't tell, like, Matt seems to have an ability with luck, but I can't tell if it's, like, his luck, or, like, I know Bran was also getting heated, so kind of just, like, in that, that moment, if he's pulling from a power source, or, like, which one of them is doing that, or if it was just completely, mm-hmm. like, coincidental, but I doubt it was, and they kind of hint at, like, one of them being the trigger for that, but um, I can't, I don't know, actually, at the moment, which one of them calls that, so curious. Yeah, it's very unclear, I think, in, in that scene. It just sort of happens uh, when, when things reach the highest tension there. Big flash of light, they're unconscious, and then the aftermath. Yeah. We, we get some interesting stuff about the political status of the two rivers and like what like the fact that they're like, wait a second, we're in Andor? And that's part of the Queen's realm, as people are calling it. Um, though you could ask the age-old question, if, uh, if, you are, if you're not collecting taxes from a remote village in your queendom, is it actually part of your queendom? <laughs> Because uh, you're not there, there's not really any sense of that at this point. That um, things are bad for Andor. The army is barely able to maintain order, and the Queen's Watch, like in the center of the kingdom, where all these refugees are swarming in. We have multiple wars going on. A lot of people not happy with the way Queen Morghese is doing everything, and a lot of people very uncomfortable with Eliada. We are uh, we've heard her name before, but here's the first point I think where we learn that she is. She's the royal vizier, basically. She's the advisor to Morghese, directing the way that things have gone lately. Uh, and a lot of people are not not cool with that. There's something going on with different people having their weapons wrapped in uh, in red fabric versus white fabric, um, which uh, we don't really know the implications of yet. Lots of talk about dragons and famine and so many of the farmers that they travel with and other people being like, yeah, this is really bad. All the crops are dying. We don't know how we're going to survive this next winter. This last winter has barely ever ended. We got no spring really this year and everybody's just going on as if life is normal. And the most exciting thing is this false dragon. But uh, uh, Queen Borghese needs to do something because people are going to start starving en masse pretty soon if things go from bad to worse. So, yeah, to that point and just kind of getting because like the politics and like where they're at, like looking at the map again, because it's it's been a minute since I've actually like stared at this. I I haven't Mm -hmm. like pulled up in front of me. I'm kind of curious that they're in Andor where Camelin and both four kings are and Whitebridge, I guess, is like is Whitebridge on the border that it looks like it's in Andor. Yeah, I think so. It's hard to tell if the river separates it or not, but like. They really haven't gotten very far. And if you look like Tarvalon is like much further up north. So they're going, well, I'm not sure is east just the easiest route instead of going across the Carolyn grass. Like why are they going into this like territory that seems like there's a, a lot of politics going on. And I don't know, they're venturing east, but is that just the easiest mm-hmm. path, path to get north? And like, why are they? Well, because Tom, Tom told them to go to Camelin, right? And that's where they could find help and safety well, that's and a, that. I thought I think what Moraine said too. So I'm curious that they're all venturing to Camelin, and I actually don't know where Perrin. Where are Perrin and Egwin at that at this point like located? Are they well because they they went off the with? road. They got way lost. They went too far north into the wilderness. That that's sort of what happened to them, right? In those those big plains. You're looking at then when El, and then when Elias shows up, he's like, uh, yeah, you overshot Camelin by a lot. You're out in the middle of nowhere, and you could keep wandering and encounter nothing but wilderness until you reach the spine of the world if you keep going this direction. So it's kind of it's amplifying the way that like in this time period and especially like, you know, even even into the Renaissance era, going off the road uh, between civilization is really, really dangerous. This is still a time when there are 
lots of wild animals all over the place, which, you know, not really the case anymore other than deer in most of the U.S. There, And that, that's where you're going to get probably, if you wander even a little off the road, um, uh, beset by bandits on the edge of the road or or starved to death. You're killed by wild animals. Like you're really, it's like wandering off into Alaska or something, you know, like one of the few states where you could still just accidentally wander for a thousand miles and miss all the cities. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's, and, and like they've sort of hinted at various points, like all roads in Andor lead to Camelin. So maybe the fastest and safest way to Tarvalin is through Camelin, like along the Queen's roads and the roads that are protected by her guards as well. And we're yeah, also, that's yeah. looking like the only path north to get mm-hmm. to, uh, if like they're following the path, but it seems like there's like this all, this open plane that they could just take. But I guess if the idea is that without a path, it's hard to kind of navigate, wouldn't make sense. But they're like going east, they keep going east further. I'm just like, I get that's like the only path on the map, but it seems to be like mm-hmm. getting them into a lot more trouble than just kind of going up through like the fields and trying to like use the stars to navigate or something. Well, what would they even eat or drink or anything, right? Is like the problem when you, you go so slowly when you have to navigate wilderness and have yeah. to carry, you have to know how far you're going, which is hundreds, if not like a thousand miles for, for them. And you'd have to have supplies for all that. And odds are you're probably going to want, you're probably going to do, you know, like what's the, um, the, the into the wild thing or whoever that, that the guy in his 20 somethings was that famously like went off to try and do the, the wilderness trek in the American North Northwest. And that even still being very dangerous today to try and do, um, and uh, and wound up dying as a result of the effort. It became like a movie and a, and a famous book and some other stuff. Um, but also, and all the lands are kind of dying too. They talk about the grass being brown, the trees bare everywhere. It's probably increasingly hard to live off the land. Uh, though we saw Perrin and Egwene doing it for, I guess, only two days. Keely pointed out it seemed longer for them, and they were already kind of, <laughs> kind of getting hung- yeah, that's hungry. True. And <laughs> it definitely felt like that was drawn out a lot more. It is interesting to look at the map. I also had it just when you drew our attention to it because they are just quite a ways from Tarvalon still. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, we're over halfway through. Yeah, I. <laughs> they're still. I kind of thought they were closer, close. but. <laughs> but I did. I did like this last, the last chapter in this section, chapter 35. It seemed like, um, I don't know, it, it seemed like exciting and uh, kind of like a climax to these wandering chapters that, that we had been reading. Um, and when he wrapped his sword, I was like, well, he should have just done that earlier. I mean, like not, mm-hmm. I, mean, I understand that this is like a more customary way, but he also could have sort of thought of that just to cover up the symbol that was putting him at risk. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Especially since he was giving thought to the sword. It does seem it's one of those a little too convenient Jordan things like like this. This solution was obvious and the characters are being more thoughtful about that now. So uh, why not? <laughs> Especially since he's like, he's wanting Matt to do the same. So he's like not wanting him to flash the dagger because of that yeah. handle and like the gem on it, the ruby gem. But I'm like, your handle seems to be just as flashy as the ruby gem or not maybe as expensive, but it's like they've pointed out it's like a really flashy blade to maybe just cover yeah. up. Like if you want the sword to be visible as like a defense, that's fine. But maybe just like wrap up your handle or I don't know, do something to it. And unique too, because there's hardly any of these in the world. So if the fades are looking for somebody with a hair mark blade, yeah. although I guess that that is the flip side. I forgot that part of of the self-defense appeal is if people see it's a heron mark blade it's much more intimidating and and, and ran notices people feeling like he feels like that they're that the goons are going to attack a couple times at the inn or that he feels like they're about to get robbed but then somebody sees the heron and like thinks twice about it and it's like Ugh, okay that's deal. that's a good justification i'll take that <laughs> well, oh speaking of the fade the murder all mm-hmm. going out to them 
how I'm still curious because it's like it's offering a reward and it's like talking to people. But like at this point, we've already like especially like seen the trailers for the show. I don't think mm-hmm. that's wildly off, but it's like this like white, pale, fleshy thing with teeth. This, how does anyone like converse with their actually? Have, I know it's like it hides its face, yeah. but like even that, like I'm surprised anyone wants to converse or even like go after any kind of reward associated with that, or even like no one seems to like these things. So mm-hmm. I'm surprised that like that even works as a tactic to be like putting a bounty well, on. Just like in sword. just like in Fellowship of the Rings, it didn't work, right? The person who like heard the offer was like, yeah, I'm not trusting that that creepy motherfucker. It's like. It's uh, like, like, you know, it's like I, I'm picturing he's probably on his horseback, like 10, 15 feet away on the road, dark hood over his head. Yeah, right. <laughs> Shia Baggins. And then, you know, the other one being like, oh, this is, you know, no. And, and like in the beginning of Fellowship, like yeah. nobody in Hobbiton, everybody in Hobbiton's like, we're not telling you where the Baggins are. You seem creepy as hell and we don't like foreigners around here. So it's. The, yeah, they like break into the inn and they have like, like their yeah. voices are super high pitched, like it's screeching. And I've, they, he, Jordan describes them the same way that it's like almost like like a screeching nail or something yeah, it's like yeah. extremely like sinister and like chills them to the bone so i think we're, we're seeing <laughs> we're seeing them not being that effectual and that's why they have to send like the armies of dark friends a- after them and rely on the humans because this is like this is where close enough to the core of civilization and maybe to tar Valen as well that the dark one's power is at its weakest with his minions and where even the merge wall are increasingly less effective, especially once they get to Camelin and, and Rand is looking around. He's like, holy shit, there's thousands of people our age here. There's so many young men. Like we're, we're, we're <laughs> it's, it's like the, we, the, the jackpot of we could hide here forever. This place is incredible. Uh, we do need to we do need to wrap up and sign off uh, on this uh, this extra long episode with our first uh, couple of episodes of the TV show. We'll have more conversations about that next time, uh, and then you know settling into our weekly like one episode of the show and our chapters of the book. I think it'll be a, a pretty pretty manageable if you're reading and watching along, or or if you're just watching along and you've not come to the books before. Uh, if you do want to read along, next time we'll be doing chapters thirty six to forty. We'll learn what's become of Matt and Rand now that they've. Uh, lost their guardian and are forced to... Oh, wait a second. Am I reading? That's the same I have from last time. We'll find out what happens next. That is what we <laughs> learned this week. Um, and we will continue our discussion of the third episode of the Wheel of Time TV series, which again, find the streaming on Prime. Get your episodes every uh, Thursday night at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Uh, oh, other exciting news. Part two of our Dune bonus episode conversation has gone live on Patreon. As I said, if you want to hear us talk about everything from Denis Villeneuve's Dune to, for reasons which will become clear, Ari Aster's Midsummer and Hereditary, 1973's The Wicker Man, Marvel's Eternals, and Alfon- Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity of All Things. <laughs> Subscribe to our Patreon at the $5 Tar Volunteer. Join the White Tower. It's a fun conversation you can be a part of as a thank you for your support and the second of many similarly fun bonus sodes to come. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at katiejarvis.com and on Instagram at 30 in LA. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me with the handle Pansy Dan with a Z instead of an S. On Twitter and Instagram, right? Uh, both places Correct. we got yeah, in there? Thank you. Yeah, both both Twitter and Instagram. And Keely, hope you feel better if you're listening to this. Uh, I, I, I will put your info in the show notes as always. And uh, remember, folks, you can find all of us at Wattcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. And as stated, support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. You can also support us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Helps a lot. Number two way we find new listeners. The number one way is to tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth means the world to us, especially now that the TV show is going and you just know 
there are going to be an influx of people searching Wheel of Time on the various podcast stores, hopefully finding us, and they'll be more likely to if you're leaving those five-star ratings and better yet, a five-star review telling folks what's so great about the show and about us, because I think we're doing a pretty swell job. That's all for today, folks. Thanks so much for listening. We may or may not be taking a Thanksgiving break uh, next week before returning with the episode, or we'll have like a truncated episode, depending on recording availability. But in the meantime, remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell. Did you wind up watching some of the show last night? I did. We watched the first two episodes, which was so fun. <laughs> okay, awesome. We we watched all three. Nice. <laughs> I didn't realize three were going up. Yeah, um, I was really excited. So, well, how about then we, we just clap and get started and we'll just talk about the show. And then when Dan okay. comes on, we'll move to the book stuff. That sounds since good. He read. Did Dan end up um, getting to see the premiere? No, same thing happened to him, except they didn't, they didn't even, he came with, with eight other, he and his partner came with eight other people and they all like got turned away despite showing up half an hour early. Damn it. Um, so they're doing a watch party tomorrow with all those people in like, you know. Okay. Okay. That's, that sucks. I'm so sorry that happened to you. That sucks. And you guys were three people away. (laughs) It's it's okay. We saw the French dispatch, which was really good. Any, anyway, really loved it. I like Wes Anderson movies a lot. So cool. uh, (laughs) I'll, I'll have to see that. I'm sure. I'm sure it was good.